Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. And today our guest will be Dr. Felix Rodriguez, an oncologist from Boynton Beach, Florida, who will discuss some general advances in cancer diagnosis and treatment and how to approach friends or family members with cancer. But Tom, first let's look at some cancer-related news items. Cancer-related news it is. In my realm of skin cancer, which is what I treat all day long, there was an article published in our uh, journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, uh, first published online in the summer, July of 2018. And the article was about skin cancer screening. Now, one hears cancer screening and automatically thinks, oh, that's a good thing to do. Don't they, Chris? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, more is always better. Especially. But this idea of screening, probably for our listeners, the idea that you do something to people that you don't think have a disease looking for the disease. Right. And I think something to be clear is screening refers to patients as undifferentiated anybody. A population. Yes. Yeah. So it's a whole population. Everybody who lives on this city block or in this this town or, or this zip code. In other words, n- consideration of risk factors is not part of what screening is about. And, and that's where the interesting uh, dichotomy comes. So does skin cancer screening do good? It, it absolutely does. But in a population, does it reduce death? Does it reduce what we call morbidity? That is, ongoing symptoms or signs of a disease. And so the American Academy of Dermatology, um, and I've been one of the doctors involved in over 2 million screenings between 1986 and 2014, where we open our offices or go to some offsite place, and anybody who wants to come comes to be screened, found that uh, out of that 2 million screenings, over 20,000 melanomas were diagnosed, about 33,000 squamous cell carcinomas, uh, and 130,000 basal cell carcinomas were found. That's a good thing. The problem is it does nothing to reduce disease and death in a population. So it did good for those individual patients, but for the population as a whole, it didn't move the needle. Now that's not the same uh, as I see a suspicious mole, I go in and have you look at it. That's not screening. That is not. Screening is taking any person off the street by random and looking them over for skin cancer. It's interesting. We just assume, as we alluded to earlier, that more is better, but it didn't translate into a beneficial effect, did it? And interestingly, several years ago, there was a study with melanoma in this entire region of Germany. And for two years, they did these public service announcements announcements about skin cancer. And then at one point in time, they asked everybody to come in for a free skin cancer screening. About one in five people did. And they showed that for several years after that, there was about a 50% reduction in dying from melanoma. Hmm. The problem is there was just as big a reduction in men as in women, yet twice as many women were screened as men. In other words, at first they said, finally, we have an example where skin cancer screening works. In the follow-up, they found out the screening itself probably had little effect. It was probably more the public service announcements that made people aware of it. So what we thought was showing, yes, screening works. Now we're back to square one. Screening doesn't move the needle for a population. But to be clear, if you see a suspicious skin lesion, go see a dermatologist. Oh, absolutely. Now, Chris, you've got something completely different with regard to cervical cancer screening, right? another form of skin (laughs) cancer, just not the skin that you usually take care of. (laughs) That's right. We're all familiar with pap smears. Pap smears are so common. It's a part of American medical culture, you might say. Uh, And recently in the journal Lancet Oncology, they looked at the value of cervical cancer. Here's that word, screening. Uh, and women uh, beyond the age of 55 and up to the age of 75. And our listeners that listen to us regularly know that uh, increasingly pap smears, we're pulling back from pap smears uh, because of the ability to test for 
human papillomavirus at the time of the pap smear. We now know that cervical cancers are caused by HPV or human papillomavirus. Otherwise known as the wart virus. Right. And the test that tests for the presence of that virus is really more valuable than the old-fashioned uh, pap smear where cytology or uh, a technician would actually look at cells. That you have scraped off to perform exactly. the pap smear. Yeah, so, so how do you do these tests for HPV? Well, it's done the same way uh, with the same device of a scraping. Ah. Uh, and then that is put into a liquid medium uh, and then the HPV test is done on that liquid medium. But what the researchers found, uh, which is new, is that if the, the last pap smear was done at the age of 55 and it included the HPV test, not okay. just the pap smear, but the pap smear plus HPV, that their probability of developing uh, cervical cancer for the remainder of their life was so low, they didn't need to be screened again. Wow. So this is in The Lancet, which is an international journal, and so the recommendations are different for, say, America versus maybe a less developed third world country where traditional pap smears are used alone and don't include the HPV virus. But for our American listeners and for many other developed countries where the HPV test is now standard of care, it means that a negative HPV at 55 means you're really done having pap smears. Wow. Well, that's good news. One now, less thing to leave the house for. It is, but there's a vocabulary problem, and I think we've talked about this before on other episodes. That doesn't mean you need to stop seeing your doctor, right? There's more to your health as a woman than your cervix. So you still need an annual exam. It's just that that annual exam doesn't need to include a pap smear nearly as often as we used to say. Very good, Chris. And you've got one more yeah, on the On the cancer theme, it comes from our friends at the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, um, and they recommend against screening for ovarian cancer. So Dr. Doctor is going to look like we're opposed to screening between your dermatology article and my ovarian cancer article, but it's very similar um, to your findings in that article and that screening for ovarian cancer just hasn't worked out. How do you screen an ovary? You can't look at it. You know, there's a blood test called a CA125, which can be drawn, and if it's elevated, it can be elevated in some ovarian cancers. Unfortunately, it's not elevated in all ovarian cancers, and it's elevated in some non-cancerous states. Uh, the other thing that can be done as a screening is ultrasound examinations looking for ovarian insist. The problem is, in many, many people, we have false positive findings, meaning the blood test was up and it suggested cancer and we operated on someone and there wasn't cancer. So you end up doing more harm than good. Cause... Absolutely. So it seems like a great idea, right? Screen yes. for ovarian cancer. But when we look at it from a population standpoint, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends against screening for ovarian cancer. Now, we talked in other episodes about women with inherited genes like the HBOC gene. Yes. They're a specialty population. This doesn't apply to them. This applies to the average woman across the population wanting to be screened for ovarian cancer. You know, this reminds me of uh, when I worked in um, vaccine research development. When somebody was receiving, you know, a vaccine for the first time, we had to do all these blood tests every time. And there were so many blood tests that inevitably, just by pure chance, some of the values were going to be abnormal or some of the abdominal x-rays we do in some of the studies, or, or whatever. And we would have to chase down the reason for every one of these abnormal tests. And it was incredibly uncommon to find anything wrong with the patient except an abnormal number. But that chasing down often involved invasive procedures, Yes, each of which could have a complication that could actually harm the patient, uh, and it was being done for no reason. Exactly. And so that's... You know, a, a different way to look at this is when is information too much information? Yeah, this comes up in my specialty with mammography. Yes. So very often a woman who's maybe 30 would say, well, what's the downside of me getting a mammogram now? It, ca it can't hurt. Well, that's actually not true. It can hurt. We have false positives. We have unnecessary biopsies that can result. So we're not opposed to screening, but it's very, very important to understand uh, the benefits and the risks of screening from a population perspective. Yes, and something that was um, clear in the, uh, the skin cancer screenings is the service being provided there is that 
uh, a significant minority, maybe 25 to 30 percent of people who come to screenings often don't have health insurance. So those are providing a service, but again, they're not moving the needle on population disease burden. Absolutely. It's a difficult concept because it isn't necessarily intuitive, but it's a very important one, isn't it? Yes. And before we go to our break, I'm going to pose a medical trivia question of the day, and unsurprisingly, it has to do with cancer. What percentage of people, according to the National Cancer Institute, will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetimes? That's a good one. That is... All of you listeners, look to your left, look to your... No, that's something else. But anyway, how many of you, how many of us, will be diagnosed with cancer sometime during our lifetimes? Stay tuned and be back after the break with more on cancer on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to the second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor, where we are going to be talking about some updates and some interesting, helpful hints about dealing with cancer in general with Dr. Felix Rodriguez. He is an oncologist, a cancer doctor in Boynton Beach, Florida, who works at multiple hospitals that area. He got his medical degree at the University of Puerto Rico School of Medicine and his uh, oncology training at the uh, University of Connecticut Health Center. He's been in practice for over 20 years, and he's the founding president of the Palm Beach Catholic Medical Association Physicians Guild. Felix, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hi. Good to have you. Uh, And since Felix is the first oncologist we've had on Dr. Doctor, we wanted to cover uh, some general topics that we think would be of interest to our listeners. And I think the first thing is to get to know you a little better. Felix, why did you decide to enter this very challenging, very emotionally charged field of oncology to treat patients with cancer? Well, I've always been very much interested in cell physiology, uh, although at the beginning I was uh, thinking of becoming a cardiologist. But as I went into the internal medicine training and I got in touch with so many other physicians that were treating cancer. I felt that treating cancer was, was going to be a, a bigger discipline, giving me uh, options to deal with different types of illnesses as cancer is. And also, it's a very challenging, intellectually-driven uh, profession. There's always a lot of discoveries going on. And then also from the spiritual side, it's even though it's spiritually very uh, draining, um, there is a lot of satisfaction in knowing that you've done your best for helping a patient that's dealing with such a critical point in their life. Now, Felix, I know our listeners are wondering, uh, TV shows notwithstanding, but <laughs> what, what is it like to actually tell a patient that they have cancer? So mo- most of the patients that come to me already have a diagnosis, but if I could relate to things like when I have to give bad news. For instance, today I had such uh, an event. It's something that you learn as you go uh, all these years of dealing with uh, cancer care. But I try to be as clear as possible with uh, my patients. I try to maintain a very um, calm conversation, understanding that what I'm going to say is going to hit them very hard uh, I try to give them some space uh, to uh, issue their concerns. But I, at the end of the conversation, and these happens, this happens many times during the day, I, I am very drained. So I have to really start my day uh, very centered. And that's where the spiritual disciplines are, are very key in, mm. in dealing with cancer patients. When a patient comes to see you for the first time, what are their initial questions? First, uh, they want to know the stage of the cancer. I get that question asked most of the time. Um, Patients don't really know what that implies. Then after that, they want to know prognosis. Even when they're early stage cancers, they want to be sure uh, that they will be alive, that they're going to beat this. And then the other thing says, what other things can they do to help the process of getting healed from it? I would say those are the three most common questions that they get. So stages. I think patients have um, sometimes some 
misinformed ideas about what the different stages are. Can you simplify the four main stages of cancer for our listeners? There's a standard way of defining the stage. Grossly, we go from stages one to four. But when we come up with the stage of a cancer, we're dealing with first the we have something called T, which is for tumor. We base it based on the measurement or the size of the tumor, the depth of the tumor. Then we have something called N, which stands for nodes. And we want to know if there are involved lymph nodes, those lymph glands that we have all over our body, specifically the ones that are near where the cancer started. And lastly, we have M for metastases. Those are the parts that have been spreading throughout the body. So then we come with those three things, T, N, and M, and there are guidelines for each type of cancer that uh, allow you to then group the, the specific patient on either stages one, two, three, or four. Now, why, do we, why must we talk about stage? What's the relevance to stage? It has to do with the treatment that we're going to select because it has to do also with the prognosis. So a stage one cancer would be the earliest. That doesn't mean that it will necessarily uh, be dealt with all the time with uh, surgery only, but most of the times those are the cancers that we want to catch. Those are the ones that we say early detection is the key. So that would be uh, the the need for that. Mm. As we move on the staging categories, then the treatment becomes more complex in order to aim at a cure or a remission, as we like to say. Then when we move on to a stage four, particularly with the solid tumors, those are the ones that most typically will not be curable, but that doesn't mean that they cannot be treated, but that means that the treatment will be more aggressive depending on the situation. So, Felix, one way that I've always tried to explain it to patients, at least with solid tumors, so that would remove the blood cancers, lymphoma, leukemia, perhaps. But if you have a solid tumor, stage one is usually a little tumor. Stage two is a, a bigger tumor that hasn't spread. Stage three, it's spread to the nearby lymph nodes. And stage four, it's gone beyond the nearby lymph nodes. Is that a, a relevant simplification? I would say so, but one thing that I always clarify to the patients is the, the distance from the tissue of origin, I want them to understand, uh, also depends on whether there's metastasis to bones, there's sure. cancer to the brain. So I, I go by those categories because some areas of metastatic disease don't have the same implication, like brain from a breast cancer will have a worse implication than uh, bone disease from breast cancer. But they would both be stage four. They would both be stage four, correct. Interesting. So, you know, across the board, as you think about it today, has the, the likelihood that one is going to die from a cancer diagnosis, has, has that increased or decreased over the last 20 years of your practice, would you say? Well, thankfully, it has decreased. Uh, and, and I was looking for some information from the uh, Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results. This is a program from the National Cancer Institute. And between 1991 and 2015, the overall cancer death rate in the U.S. fell by 25%. Mm. So that is has had to do with early detection, but also has had to do with improvement in our therapies, both in the surgical radiation and in the systemic therapy or chemotherapy approach. And that is so, something very satisfying. I have patients that are living well into their 90s. Uh, <laughs> very good. And, and, and it's very satisfying as a physician to, to see that I've been able to help accomplish these goals on these patients that still live with cancer but uh, are able to, to have fulfilling lives. So more people are dying with cancer than of cancer compared to 20 years ago? That is also probably the truth uh, based on the statistics. But you said they're living or living or dying or living. But I, I would say that there are more people living with cancer than compared to 20 years yes. ago. And plus, well, I would say that there are more people dying of cancer because of that. Sure, because of advanced life, more chance of getting cancer. That, that makes sense. I, I think people who have more advanced cancers, the question they often ask is, Doc, how long do I have to live? 
How hard is it to give a, a good answer to that question? That is the hardest question. I always use that line that we like to use. I don't have a crystal ball to tell the future. Yes. But uh, joking or, or side comments uh, uh, not involved here, I have to base it on the uh, test that I see, how advanced is it on presentation, and how likely is the treatment to work. Uh, if it's a metastatic breast cancer with bone disease only, then that lady or man, if that's the case, will have a higher chance of living several years. But if it's somebody who's presenting with uh, liver metastases or lung metastases, a spread of tumor to the liver, spread of tumor to the lung, the likelihood is that they probably won't be alive in a year. So uh, there's always that question that I get, oh, will I be living six months or, or a year? And then at that point, I said, well, it depends on whether you respond to the treatment. Interestingly, with the newer therapies that we have, the targeted therapies, the immune therapies, and all these other uh, advances that we've had over the past five years, I would say, there are people that present with uh, such bad disease, liver metastases, who are currently alive because of the treatment. And that's something that I was not able to say again, five years ago. So what are these new targeted therapies and immune therapies? What do you think uh, our listeners should know about those classes of drugs? The first thing is to distinguish those drugs from chemotherapy. I know that when you have a, a cancer patient in the office, you use the word chemotherapy, they have these horrible ideas from time uh, immemorial of side effects and hair loss and nausea and vomiting. So the newer therapies are not chemotherapy in the classic sense. Uh, the, the classic chemotherapies attack uh, several parts of the cell division and DNA and so forth. Whereas the newer uh, immunotherapies, uh, in this case, that I want to talk about, are stimulating your own immune system to attack the cancer. Uh, there are these uh, new categories that are called the um, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Basically, they're um, trying to engineer, if you will, your own immune system to attack the cancer cells. And, and that's why uh, these therapies uh, have such a good success rate. Now, that means that they have other side effects that are very different than chemotherapy. Would these therapies be considered more, quote, natural hmm. than chemotherapy because you're trying to get your body to do what it should do if it's fighting off a cancer? You can envision them that way. Uh, but they're not natural in the sense of the way they've been developed. Correct. Uh, and they are not alternative medicine. That, that's an important distinction. So, Felix, are there in general less side effects with these new therapies compared to chemotherapy? They are. There, there's less side effects. We don't typically get the hair loss. We don't get the nausea. We don't get the vomiting. One important thing to remember with these newer drugs, the immunotherapies in particular, is they do have their own possibilities for immune complications. And if you want, I could speak to you about what these complications would be. I, I go over them with the patients all the time. That doesn't make them necessarily safe, but in general, patients do tolerate these medications better than they tolerate classic chemotherapy. Felix, this has been great information. We're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more of Cancer from Dr. Felix Rodriguez on Dr. Doctor. We're back on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we're joined by Dr. Felix Rodriguez, an oncologist from the sunny state of Florida. Uh, and Felix, you, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you, you're you participating in the walk with your patients, and there certainly is a spiritual side. Um, as a Catholic oncologist, help us understand how do, you, how do you bring your faith and your Catholicity to the care of your patients? Well, first, I pray before I leave my home or when I'm praying in the car. I, it, it, there was something that actually a, a 
an evangelical pastor told me once, he said, <laughs> Felix, when you leave home, uh, cover yourself in the blood of Christ, and when you come back home, cover yourself in his blood again, and, and, and be uh, very uh, conscious that you are with him the whole day. Now, that is more, uh, easier said than done. I trust that that prayer that I do in the morning uh, will carry me through the day. And, and I would say it, it does. Now, as far as the, the interaction with the patient, do I, do I see Christ in every patient? Am I conscious of that all the time? I don't, but I, I try to be as empathetic as possible. And there are very uh, good moments uh, during the day where, where patients will see that I'm wearing uh, uh, one of these newer uh, pieces of, that you wear as a, with a cross uh, around the wrist, uh, uh, or do I wear a pendant, or what have you. They are looking for those signs, whether they're believers or not. That's fascinating. Uh, Something as simple as just a piece of jewelry could really signal to a patient that you're uh, of similar similar mindset, huh? And, and, and I would say even people that are not necessarily Christians, so I have Jewish patients, I have uh, Muslim patients, I have patients who are not believers, but they see that uh, memento, if you will, that, I'm, that is with me, and they, they're in that very critical moment of being in a cancer uh, office, uh, a cancer doctor office. That helps give them some peace. And I, when I look back on those moments, I said, you know, God, I may not have remembered that it was you that was there, but it was you. So that's, that's the way the, the Catholic faith gives me a, a lot of uh, strength for the journey, if you will. Um, we are, indeed, you all know, because we all share the same faith, that indeed this is something that the Lord has called us to do. And as I walk my walk with the Catholic Medical Association I got to tell you uh, this has become more evident for me so it, it's given me a view of that supernatural dimension that I deal with every day and how do you think the view of the supernatural dimension influences the fulfillment that you get in caring for cancer patients I know that I'm making a difference in in these people's lives um, that even if they are going to ultimately die, the fact that I present to them a caring point of view, uh, whether it is explaining the new chemotherapy that I'm going to give them, whether it is to take my time to listen to what they want to ask me, whether it's uh, trying to be more patient with them as they say, oh, doctor, I forgot to ask you this, that, or the other. Uh, I think that carries through uh, to them, giving them peace, and that does give me fulfillment. For me to know at the end of the day that that has made a difference and that I've been able to give them options and clarify their questions uh, and dealing with their side effects, whatever those may be, that has, uh, is a treasure for me. Well, you know, if there are young physicians or medical students listening, uh, I, I think they would be uh, uplifted by knowing that you you don't have to leave your faith at the door, especially when you're taking care of serious problems uh, like cancer. That's really a beautiful picture that you paint. Felix, uh, something that I think will help our listeners immeasurably is, is this situation. Say they have a friend, a coworker, a family member who's been recently diagnosed with cancer. Most of us in that situation don't know how to react, how to talk to that patient. We're, we're naturally uncomfortable because that, that person has now gone from what I've seen some medical writers call the land of um, the well to the land of the sick. And it, it's a very different geography that they inhabit. What advice can you give to, to Chris and me, as well as our listeners, uh, on how to interact with that friend, family member, or colleague who has been recently diagnosed with a significant cancer? First, I would say uh, being, having a cancer diagnosis is very lonely, uh, mm -hmm. even when people have family members and good friends. And that ministry of accompaniment, even if it's just being with them quiet, and then 
listening to what they have to say, giving that loved one or friend a space to express what they're feeling. Because many things uh, go through their head and things that they will not tell their doctors or their nurses. Uh, but having that openness to, to listen. I would say it's more important to know how to listen to the patient with cancer than to be giving advice, particularly family member or loved one. So in other words, this is helping me greatly here. So I can go into that situation and say, I want to be here with you. I know this is tough. What do you want to say? Would that be a, a good initial thing to do? That would be a good initial thing to do. And the other thing, uh, and this is something that I dare say I, I, I learned from for my wife. My wife's uh, <laughs> training is in counseling. Ah. So uh, there is a phrase that she likes to use is to validate. Hmm. And that's, I guess, a, a, a buzzword for, for people that do counseling. And, and that is something very important for the cancer patients. So validate what they're going through. They're going to be angry. They're going to be sad. Uh, so it would not be uh, useful to tell them, oh, don't be sad. You know, the doctor said that we're going to do the surgery and you're going <laughs> to get chemotherapy and radiation. So that at that point, that's not what the person would need to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to be, again, to use the buzzword validated. And validation is that you're acknowledging that they're going through that and that you're there with them. And, you know, maybe a week later, they're going to say, you know what? Dr. Rodriguez did say that we're going to beat this. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, Felix, you used, uh, you used that phrase I've never heard before, ministry of accompaniment. And just listening to that, that's a beautiful phrase, the idea that I'm with you and I'm, I'm going to walk with you and I may not cure your problem, but I'm going to care for you. I think in other episodes, Tom and I have talked to people about medicine, and it, it sure feels like so much of medicine has moved away from that kind of yes. ministry towards technology and, and computers and such, where you're painting a picture of just a caring person uh, being there on, on, a, on a journey. That's really beautiful. Well, thank you. And, and it's uh, an important thing to transmit also then to the family members, if they are open to understanding that. I, I wish I had time in, in my practice to, to be able to uh, have these conversations with the patients directly. Unfortunately, uh, modern medicine only gives you so much time, but, but it is something that uh, I would like to explore. You know, you mentioned that I'm the uh, president of the Family Physicians Guild, and that is something that I would like to explore with my fellow members to, to let them know that this is something that we as Catholic physicians do have, that, that to use my word treasure again, that ministry of accompaniment is, even if you're uh, just doing uh, primary care in an office. Mm. Felix, uh, I want to turn to some areas of uh, misconceptions or myths regarding cancer. And, and I've noticed throughout my life that at different time periods, there is always some new greatest thing that's going to cure all forms of cancer. And people put an incredible amount of faith in these things. In uh, the 1970s, I remember Laetrile from Apricot Pits. In the 1950s in Russia, it's actually in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's cancer ward, it was Shaga made from birch fungus, fungus that grew on trees, and, and lately it's CBD or cannabidiol. Why is it that things like this come up every decade or so that really have very little medical validity that patients put an incredible amount of hope and faith in? Well, it's like with so many fads, you know, I, you go back to the, the panaceas and, and those uh, things that they used to sell in, in, in trade shows. In Snake the oil. 19th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you know, people are looking for, for fast fixes or for things that are outside of, of the medical knowledge because they are afraid of what they're going to go through with, with chemotherapy or the other treatments that we're going to offer them. And so now, interestingly, with, uh, with the cannabinoids, in, at the molecular level, this is being uh, studied um, specifically with breast cancer cell lines. So for the uh, for cannabidiol, particularly, there there is some truth to those claims. But keep in mind, these are molecular and, and cell culture studies. We do not know whether this is going to translate into uh, uh, in vivo 
uh, let alone, you know, what is a dose going to be? So, so patients are out there trying, uh, grabbing for straws and, and looking for answers uh, and hope. Uh, and we honestly need to explain to them, we need to wait for the actual scientific data to be here so that we know that the treatment that we're going to give you is going to work and you cannot go with, with what uh, Aunt Julia is going to say, oh, I went to uh, <laughs> Dr. Smith and he uh, says that I can give you uh, the, you can get the card for medical marijuana. Uh, by the way, I do go through those things now. Uh, uh, patients do come, oh, my pr- primary care physician told me I can use medical marijuana. Can I use this with the treatment you're going to give me? And I say, sorry, there's no data. Uh, so again, another part where I have to be patient and try to explain to them as well as possible so that they don't go into having side effects that we don't expect. So Felix, we've talked with a lot of guests about nutrition, uh, exercise, diet on Dr. Doctor. Um, and in some cases it seems too good to be true, but I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the effect of, um, diet of nutritional therapies and of exercise therapies on uh, across the board with patients with uh, cancer diagnoses? So it's very important that patients maintain good sound nutrition uh, during cancer treatment and so on. That's because, well, backtracking a bit. So there are some lifestyle issues and diet issues that will make people prone to cancer, like obesity and alcohol, and we all know uh, smoking. But then when you get the diagnosis of cancer, I, I tell patients, well, you need to have the building block to repair your body. If you don't eat properly, you won't have the building blocks to counteract whatever side effect you're going to get through. And I, I underline to them, now your nutrition is going to be part of your treatment. Uh, and some of the centers around do have very good nutritionists that explain this to patients, but it's important that they hear it from the doctor. Um, because maintaining the adequate caloric intake is going to be part of their way to repair themselves and to help their body counteract the effects of the cancer. Felix, in the last minute and a half or so, what do you wish every cancer patient would know? I would like cancer patients to uh, not be afraid to ask questions to their doctors when they go into the office to remain open, to uh, have a good relationship with those doctors, and also to educate themselves on their diagnosis. Uh, The internet has very, very bad information, but the reputable websites have great information. So it is important for all cancer. What are those reputable websites? Yes. So the uh, American Cancer Society has patient-driven pages that are very easy to understand. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, also specific for uh, those uh, blood diseases. And the American Society of Clinical Oncology, to which I belong as an oncologist, has, uh, I believe it's cancer.org, and they go by diagnoses, they go by treatments, they go by side effects. And that way, patients, when they come see me, if they research that or if they have questions, then they have extra knowledge. So they're better prepared. Uh, knowledge in a way, better prepared. Knowledge in a way is freeing. Uh, although yes. sometimes they get more nervous of what they hear, but, but then I can clarify whatever questions they may have on what they read. Felix, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back with our last segment after the break. You're back with Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And Tom, I know people really want to know the answer to the medical trivia question. What percentage of people, according to the National Cancer Institute, will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetimes? I would love to hear what you listeners are guessing or thinking of. But uh, an easy way to think of it is if you're a family of five, two parents and three children, on average, about two of you 
will have cancer at some point during your life. So it was 38% is the actual answer. So roughly two out of five people sometime during their life will have some form of cancer. Wow, that's impressive. It's, it's not nearly as rare as we might like to think, is it? No, but if you think about it, a huge swath of that is skin cancer. And the huge majority of skin cancer is not life-threatening. Absolutely. Because there's about five times as many skin cancers as all other cancers put together. So, Tom, we're going to leave cancer and talk about something much more straightforward, and that is sex. Right, something that even <laughs> an OB-GYN doctor like you can tell when a patient is born. Well, I thought I had this down. It's been 25 years of practice. I thought I had it down, but it turns out it's not as straightforward, at least Many would have us believe. And here to help us talk about that is Dr. Michelle Cretella. She practiced general pediatrics for 17 years in the Northeast, in Connecticut and Rhode Island. And she left practice full-time to work in research and advocacy for the American College of Pediatrics, which is the natural law alternative to the American Academy of Pediatrics. She also is a member of the Catholic Medical Association. And under her leadership as president and now as executive director for ACPEDS, as it's known, uh, that organization has become the primary medical voice critical of transgender medicine. And Michelle, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks so much for, for inviting me. And actually, I just have to correct, make one little correction. We're the American College of Pediatricians. I'm sorry, not pediatrics, <laughs> pediatricians. Pediatricians. <laughs> that is yeah. good to know. Now, there's this, well, you're on here because you know, right now, uh, in December 2018, there's a letter that you spearheaded to the executive branch about redefining or what the definition of sex is in federal law. Exactly, because um, November 5th, in fact, is when we had 35, I mean, this is shocking, 35 physician and healthcare groups sent a letter to the executive branch insisting that the definition of sex be changed, insisting that sex also means gender identity. Um, and following the letter to redefine sex as gender identity, 18 attorneys general sued the Trump administration to try and make this happen. And no one was pushing back. So that is what pushed me to talk to fellow physicians who support science and know what sex is. So you put together a letter that's on your website, which is uh, www.acpeds or acpeds.org. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, the hard copy of the letter uh, was mailed out, registered mail to Department of um, Health and Human Services, the Department of Justice, and the Department of um, Education. That was mailed out December 4th. And then following that, we posted it online as a petition. And as, as of today, we have over 8,000 signatures, and they keep coming in. Wow. Now, Michelle, I mean, I hope our listeners will go online and read the article. But give and they the, can also sign it. Yeah, absolutely. And give yes, us the high yes. points uh, of the letter. Well, essentially, the, the, um, the myth that is going around is that sex is a spectrum and, um, the, the, you know, the other side is, is doing this by saying, oh, embryonic development is, of, of sex is really complex. And then we even get, you know, many, you know, sometimes you're getting kids with ambiguous genitalia and, you know, different chromosome combinations. So sex is all, not all that clear. When the fact is, 99.98% of the time, sex is unambiguous in a baby. What we're talking about are disorders, or what they really are, ta are, are talking about are disorders of sex development, which happen in less than 0.02%. Well, the emphasis on the word disorders, right? I mean, these are pathological right. conditions um, exactly. in a tiny, tiny fraction of children. Yeah. I mean, an analogy would, it's as if, um, so clearly, these, even though they have MD after their name or they're scientists, they're clearly pushing an ideology and an agenda because an analogy would be to say, you know, the development, the embryolo embryological development of the palate is really complex. <laughs> and sometimes we get babies born with cleft, cleft palates. <laughs> hey, there's a normal, yeah, there's a spectrum of normal human palates. No. <laughs> I mean, but 
really, this is what they're doing, and they're confusing people because of the, and it's all part and parcel of the transgender movement. And this is dangerous. That we have to feel compassion for for those people who are alienated from their biological sex, uh, or they feel or believe they're the opposite sex, or that they're nothing, you know, neither sex. Sure, we can feel compassionate, but we cannot enshrine their mental disorder or uh, mistaken beliefs. We can't enshrine those in law. So why did the leaders of those 35 organizations calling the government to change the definition of sex, what good do they think they're doing? Because we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're doing this for what they think is a good reason. Some, uh, there's no doubt that some of them truly believe that the only way to uh, help people conf- either confused about their sex or uh, who identify as transgender is to actually affirm their belief in every single way, including within the law. So they believe that if the law is changed, this will solve all of the mental health problems mm. of the individual. It's interesting. It's this, uh, you know, this demand to worship at the altar of tolerance, where tolerance means you agree with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> isn't right. that? It's frustrating. It's funny. As I read the letter, too, I have to think um, those who generally lean leftward and on the political spectrum seem to often hold science up as the ultimate science is everything. Everyone needs to be an engineer and study math and science and science and yep. science until they don't like science, like in this case. Yes. And then we move from science to sort of, you know, sociology or uh, our politics. Well, this is actually, I want to say a couple things. This is very interesting because this is one of those cases in which the natural law has brought together people from both sides of the spectrum. I received back maybe three years ago an email and phone call, uh, initially an email, and then phone calls from radical feminists who are radically pro-abortion, pro, um, you know, same-sex marriage and so forth. But they contacted me and said, look, we may disagree on these two other, on these two other big issues, but we love what you're writing and doing on the transgender issue because you're protecting women and children mm. and we want the same thing. They understand and they basically, their, their uh, tagline is biology isn't bigotry, right? <laughs> so there are people, and, and it's wonderful, it's a wonderful tagline. Um, and many of the signers of, our, of this letter, which is now a petition, are on the left. There is a, an atheist evolutionary biologist whom I quote in the letter. He signed on to the petition. He said, this is, this is wonderful. This is absolutely true. They understand not only is this, you know, science and biology, they also understand that if sex, if our bodies don't mean anything and sex is irrelevant to who we are, our biological sex is irrelevant, then there's no common understanding of what a human being is. Absolutely. In the natural law, a human being is an embodied, sexed individual, allegedly with rational capacity, right? (laughs) (laughs) Capacity. So, Michelle, there are a lot of gender identity laws out there in the country, and a lot of people say, oh, no harm has come from them. Is that true? No. There, there is a lot of harm. There's always a lag. There's always lag time between the laws and then the <laughs> consequence. So already there are numerous lawsuits across the country on behalf of women who've been assaulted in um, domestic homeless shelters. Um, so in other words, single-sex um, homeless shelters, single-sex, uh, homes for for women who've been um, victims of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, women's prisons. Um, there's even cases of girls who've been assaulted in their school bathrooms. And probably the most tragic one was recently in Georgia. It was a five-year-old kindergarten girl who was assaulted by um, a five-year-old boy from her class who is described as non-binary, 
identifies as quote-unquote nightmare. So a five-year-old little boy assaulted a five-year-old little girl in the girls' room. Mm. And he was allowed in there because many schools have the policy and they will not tell parents because they're not supposed to, um, that, oh, if a child says they're trans, you have to treat them that way or else it's considered discrimination. So there is great harm being done to women and girls uh, in particular, and even in sports. The um, Connecticut State Girl, it was the Girls State Track Championship for 2017 and again in 2018, went to boys. Yes, Boys won that, and they were two high school boys who had previously competed on the boys' track team early in their careers, then declared themselves transgender. They are, uh, they are under the care of an endocrinologist and a quote-unquote gender team, but um, neither one went on estrogen. So, so they were literally competing as, as boys, boys mm. against girls Michelle, and we're supposed to be you know surprised in, in our last 25 seconds here sure, what would yeah. you ask our concerned listeners to do please go to the acpeds.org go to our website please read the full letter it's fully referenced and also review our gender identity page um, get get yourselves educated because there are there are consequences for all of us. This is a dangerous issue, even more dangerous legally than abortion. Michelle, you have been a wonderful guest. And we also thank our listeners for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Yes, and be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. We'll be discussing other exciting, cutting-edge medical news like we have on this episode. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.